Hello and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening in. Today's podcast uh, I'm going to call A Conversation with an Esthete, and that would be Alan Crawford, who styles himself as Lord Whimsy on YouTube. Go to his Lord Whimsy YouTube channel and check out these very amusing little films or videos. And uh, we're going to talk about the state of uh, male presentation in America and the state of American art and about Walt Whitman. Alan Crawford is also the illustrator of a beautifully rendered edition of Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, all hand-lettered uh, with beautiful uh, illustrations and worth checking out. So here's my conversation with an esthete, Alan Crawford. I'm talking to Alan Crawford in Mount Holly, New Jersey, uh, sort of outside Philadelphia. And Alan has an interesting persona of his own on on the web the, the past decade or so. He's a graphic designer, illustrator, and writer, and uh, but also a blogger, web presence, uh, an erstwhile character he's played on the web, known as Lord Whimsy. We'll talk about him a little bit. But he's uh, you know deeply involved in the arts and in in a certain sociological aspect of of the. Uh, our presentation of ourselves in the arts. And we're going to talk about that today, especially about the way men behave. One of the first things I want to talk to you about is the way that uh, uh, the, the generally the diminishing returns of modernity have expressed themselves in just a remarkable uh, gracelessness of contemporary life. Because I'm, uh, I'm an artist of sorts, I have to find my way into appreciating um, just about every aspect of, of life that I can, uh, at least in, in, in our own time. And um, my way of doing it was to kind of spar with it uh, for a few years there um, by taking the extreme example of uh, assuming a late Victorian persona in the, in the, uh, in, in the guise of Lord Whimsy. He was a character on your website oh, yeah. and in your blogs and, he started and YouTube. Out, uh, as a, he started out as a, as a sort of a, a pen name and a character in, um, in, a, in an independent uh, newspaper that was put out in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Independent. And uh, so I, I started out in print, and I had my own page in the newspaper, and I would have, you know, I sort of, it was sort of like if you took uh, Oscar Wilde and uh, Quentin Crisp and then um, poor Richard Zalmanac and kind of put them all together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were systematics and there were charts and all kinds of philosophical uh, screeds that were half-baked. And, but what you know, did he was, represent, yeah. really? What, what was the essence of Lord Whimsy? Well, he was sort of a, I would say he was a, an esthete, a, a dandy, um, somebody that would be completely, I mean, imagine somebody as completely out of place in uh, late 20, 21st century America as you can possibly imagine, and that would be, that would be him. Mm-hmm. Somebody be obsessed with um, the finer things, as uh, they're probably conventionally said, you know, terrariums and classical music and, and velvet suits and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I had to, you know, it was sort of a, what I considered, uh, I called it performative literature. In other words, uh, you remember that movie, The Purple Rose of Cairo, when oh, yeah, uh, sure. one, of, one of the characters steps out of the screen. Well, I was thinking it would be kind of interesting if we had a character in a book that actually existed in real life. <laughs> and so, you know, I would walk around 
around the streets of Philadelphia in, in that gear and velvet suits and that sort of thing. And, and it was an interesting social experiment as well as an art project. Were you part of steampunk or, or was it just incidentally kind of like the steampunk thing that was happening at the time? No, no. What I, I, I'm not really interested in, in nostalgia per se. I only play with it. It isn't really an obsession of mine, no. Getting back to my question, um, you say that Lord Whimsy was interested in the finer things of life. But that kind of also suggests to me that he was at war with the, the lesser and more sordid things of contemporary life. Well, I think he, he didn't have any problem. I, I don't, and, and I don't either, I don't have a problem with the sordid as such as, uh, I think it's banality, that uh, the middling banality, the, uh, the beige um, vinyl siding of American life is what uh, he had a problem with. I, I think the problem is, is when uh, the middling domesticity and um, the crippling banality that, that people settle for in our society, you know, and that was like a larger criticism. You know, I, it was supposed to be really, and it is, you know, it's meant to be funny. I mean, I'm a humorist at heart, so, you know, but I kind of attacked it from a ridiculous point of view because kind of taking it straight on, you sound like a humorless scold. But uh, okay. since we do kind of, you know, unfortunately, there's there's a core of pathos there because what you have is, you know, what we have in 21st century America is essentially an open air labor camp when you get get, get down to it. I mean, we're, we're kind of like being farmed, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so I was calling attention to that. Well, uh, sort of at the heart of the Lord Whimsy thing was the, the whole kind of uh, clothing and dandyism element of it. And how, you know, basically you experimenting with presenting your persona in the dress that you concocted for yourself. And um, I've been very interested. Oh, sure. I've been very interested in uh, recent years with the uh, way that males present themselves in contemporary American life. And well, I think. Yeah. What well, happened is we kind of settled for being second-rate Anglo-Saxons when we should have uh, been concentrating on kind of coining our own American, North American idiom of dress and, and, and culture. You know, there's a, a saying that the, uh, the sporting wear of one generation becomes the formal wear of the next generation. <laughs> so that, you know, you get these shooting jackets of English gentlemen from uh, the 1880s, and it, it turns into the uh, black tie and tails of the drawing room of 1900, right? Yeah, well, what happened is we uh, we stopped thinking of clothes as attire, and we started thinking of clothes as equipment. It's kind of like practicality rung amok, but now we're, we're kind of hitting a, a, a point of diminishing returns on that. Um, well, there are a couple of levels of, of this I'm interested in. One is just the sheer uh, monotony of the 20th century costume for males, you know, um, generally in America. Uh, you know, the, the business suit and, uh, you know, khakis and button-down shirts and, and, and all that. I find myself, for example, wanting to uh, uh, wear a sword. Yeah, <laughs> you've mentioned that, yeah. <laughs> well, Is there any I, future in that? I'm an avid fencer myself, so I'm, I'm all for swords. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I trust my neighbors with them so uh -huh. much. I've got a hothead HVAC guy next door that I'm always sparring with, so I don't know if that's not... Although I'd probably make mincemeat of the day. You know, you had, a, you had a much more wider variety in the 19th century, and even in the 18th century in clothes... Um, Fashions tended to change much faster and much more wildly. Um, 
Although there is a school of thought out there that people who really know what they're talking about with men's dress, I'm not one of them, I just use it as a hobby horse, um, but I feel that um, American men's dress probably peaked in the 30s with the drape cut suit. Um, it was probably the most comfortable and the most flattering and the most natural looking on uh, on the average American male. And, it, and you look dressed up without feeling dressed up. And uh, so I get, you know, there's there's an argument that could be made for that. Um, me, myself, um, I've kind of lapsed back from my, you know, I've kind of like fallen off the wagon, uh, mainly because I can't afford that kind of lifestyle because <laughs> you know, I'm an artist for crying out loud. Um, so I've kind of like retreated to mid 20th century poets, actually, like William Carlos Williams or John Berryman or Frank O'Hara. They have a rumpled gentility to them that I really like. You know, they they look casual, although they look formal at the same time. They're kind of like informally formal. And, I, and I'm really attracted to that. You know, the fact that their suits are kind of wrinkled and their collars are kind of peeling up, but they still have a, a suit and tie on. You know, they kind of look <laughs> like a, an architect or a professor kind of on on holiday or something. And I think they kind of, if, if there is such a thing as American sprezzatura, um, I think that's it. I think a lot of people kind of look at the preppy look as the ideal American sort of idiom, but I, I think they're wrong. I think that kind of has class associations that I myself am not comfortable with because I kind of come from a middle to lower middle class background. And so the comedy behind all of uh, what I do with the whimsy thing is because it's a you know, a, a lower middle class guy's idea of what it's like to be a, an upper class toff, as it were. You know? uh-huh. A lot of people seem to think that the future of costume for for men, well, really for men and women, perhaps, uh, you know, is a kind of Star Trek pajama. <laughs> um, and, and I have a feeling that that's not true. In fact, one of my theories is that, uh, you know, as we move out of this current sloppy ass kind of phase of American history, mm. uh, and if we if we enter anything like the long emergency that I've sketched out or the world made by hand that I've sketched out, these are social situations where um, people have to be a lot more polite because, for example, um, uh, the law is not uh, as much of a presence as, as it used to be. So yeah. you have to be more polite. And I'm kind of wondering if that also suggests that we have to, um, you know, come come out with a more formal self-presentation. Well, that's possible. I think I'm a big fan of uh, the idea of um, mindfulness and manners, appearance. You know, all of that is important because, you know, all of that determines... The texture of everyday life as much as, say, buildings and streetscape do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, they are very important. And uh, there's something that we kind of have to keep an eye on. I think, I think what we have to do is to um, uh, trade in our societal narcissism, which basically is self-consciousness, and, uh, and trade it for just vanity, which is basically focused on other people rather than ourselves. You know, it was like that old saw that... Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, used to say, "Is it, eat to please yourself, but dress to please others." Oh, interesting. And um, I think we kind of had to get back to that more socially minded way, mindset. Well, in a kind of retroactive uh, way of asking the same question, how did we go from being a nation of men in neckties and hats who called each other Mister to a land of tattooed louts in, <laughs> in baby clothes who call each other motherfucker? Yeah, uh, homicidal toddlers, that's what I call them, yeah. Um, 
Well, I, I've seen a resurgence in in, um, in interest in men's clothes in the cities, but it doesn't seem to be uh, rolling out into the provinces from what I've seen. So, um, although that having been said, I'm... I, I tend to operate in a lot of different circles. So, I mean, I know people that are tatted up to their eyeballs, and they tend to be really sensitive, sweet people. Um, they just have a different aesthetic. But, I, you know, they, they happen to be sensitive, sweet people that are kind of buying into really aggressive, uh, perpetual adolescent sort of um, uh, bill of goods that we've been sold by marketing and advertising and that sort of thing. And uh, it seems to we have a really stunted uh, idea of what it means to be uh, an adult man uh, in in our society now. It seems like everybody's 16 forever. Well, you know, there's one theory about youth uh, raiment uh, that says that, you know, it comes out of the whole prison culture thing with, uh, you know, they take your belt away and they take your shoelaces away so that your, your pants no longer really uh, stay up and, and your shoes are floppy and, and all that. But, uh, yeah. you know, there's another thing that's going on that I, that I, I think is actually has more truth to it. The mm-hmm. idea that, uh, you know, you wear, a, uh, you wear short pants that come down to your ankles and mm-hmm. a kind of a T-shirt that comes down to uh, your knees. And the thing is that four-year-olds have very uh, long torsos mm-hmm. and short legs. So it seems to me yeah. that a lot of young men are presenting themselves as four-year-olds deliberately. And that... <laughs> You know, the statement that this makes is that I, I haven't developed into, into an adult, despite the fact that I'm 23 years old. I actually feel like a four-year-old. Um, wh- where do you stand on that uh, idea? You know, I'm, I'm like you in that I enjoy uh, sort of uh, uh, like uh, cooking up theories like this. It, it makes for, for great grist for the mill. Um, uh, as far as that goes, I, I really couldn't um, speak to that, although I will say that when I am in neighborhoods uh, where that type is uh, pretty prevalent, uh, at least in parts of Philadelphia, um, I tend to be treated surprisingly well, actually. People, you know, they like my suit and they ask me where they, I got it, that sort of thing. And I actually wind up making a few friends, uh, strangely enough. Um, it's, in the, it's in the suburbs that I have problems. Well, what do people do to you in the suburbs? Oh, well, you get you, you get all kinds of, you know, people yelling things from cars, that sort of thing. And that's been an interesting observation. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. In, in other words, you know, I mean, what you would assume would happen in, say, quote unquote, a bad neighborhood doesn't actually happen. And what happens in, say, a good neighborhood out in the lily white suburbs is actually where you got to watch yourself. In fact, when I'm out in Philadelphia... Uh, on the weekends, the the people I I look out for are the uh, the the people you know the the cl- the the clusters of white suburbanites who aren't used to people unlike themselves, and they're the ones that are most likely to give you a hard time. Oh, interesting. Well, so you know, I'm always fascinated yeah. when, when I go into an airport, uh, and over the recent years, I spent a lot of time in airports and. Uh, uh, it's interesting to see how Americans present themselves in the public realm. There is there isn't much of a public realm in the United States that is any good. That you know most of most of what we live in in America has been in one way or another sort of privatized and and uh, uh, unlike other lands, for example, in Europe where people live in much smaller houses or smaller apartments and they spend a great deal of their 
their regular life in public places. It's, it's kind of an extension of their own cognitive realm or their own domain. So it seems to me that, that they mm-hmm. have to much more consciously construct a public persona and express it that way through the, you know, the, the way they present themselves. I think they're probably more used to the idea of uh, the agora, the public square, than we are, and, and putting on a public face. You know, what, I guess what is known as la bella figura, um, in the sense that uh, you know there's there's a there's a common nexus point in the culture where people are expected to present themselves in an, in, in a more idealized way. I guess you could say um, we've kind of done away with a lot of that. I mean, I, I I'm lucky enough to live near a city where there are a lot of these public squares uh, that are still. Um, uh, extant, um, but the majority of uh, the landscape—I do agree with you there—is uh, I do find the majority of the American landscape as decentralized and uh, and devoid of these places. So you know, you go directly from your bedroom to the airport. It's no wonder that uh, there's a bit of a disconnect there. Yeah, well, actually, there, the, the, I think quite the opposite. There isn't a disconnect. In fact, people behave in the airport as though they were in their bedroom. And that's why you see so many of them walking around in their pajamas in Concord C of the Atlanta airport. Yeah. In other words, they don't, they don't make a distinction between where they are and what they're wearing. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, you just mentioned the, you know, one of my, uh, pet preoccupations and the subject of quite a few of my books, which is the, um, man-made environment, the human habitat, the everyday world, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, this is a place in America, you know, these public uh, domains where ugliness, purposelessness, boredom, cruelty and meaninglessness all seem to meet. And I wonder what your view of that is and, and what it might have done to us. Yeah, I, I think there are definitely some toxic narratives floating around in the culture right now. That's for sure. Um, we, we've seen to have done away with the idea of respect. Um, and, and, and I, you know, just to be clear, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to come off like a William F. Buckley character here or anything like that, although every once in a while I'll get one of these people thinking that I'm on their side. Um, uh <laughs> Yeah, I do. And that's the other that's the other thing. I get these, uh, you know, these uh, young Republican types that think that I'm, uh, you know, one of their guys and I'm not. Um, but there is there is a point to be made. There is that, you know, you get the, these um, people who, you know, narratives are really powerful things. And, and both uh, ends of the political spectrum use them to very powerful effect and people buy into them. And then they kind of use those in place of they use narratives rather than thought. And that's, uh, you know, and that's where you uh, adolescent aggression and infantile rage and and people stop trading in ideas that are open to review and subject to change. And then you have them trading that for ideology, which is a fixed idea that never does change and arrests growth. And I think that's really a part of the problem. How have you managed to... uh... Address that in your own life. I try to live as sensibly as I can. Uh, you know, I, I try to um, um, achieve unreasonable ends through reasonable means. I guess you could say. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm militantly polite, or at least I try to be. I try to make sure that uh, I'm not um, stepping on people's toes. You know, just. just 
you know, basic consideration and trying to exercise that. And, and hopefully by doing that, I'm, in, you know, inspiring other people to do that. There's only so much you can do. You know, you, you try to conduct yourself the way you think uh, the average person should conduct themselves and hope that other people kind of catch on. But, um, you know, you kind of feel like King Canute some days. You know? <laughs> well, how important is the town or the city or the urban environment uh, to a well-functioning society or to a, you know, a healthy uh, person in that society? Well, I think it's 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 central. I think it's the setting through which we uh, uh, through you know it's the stage that's that set for us really. And unfortunately, a lot of us haven't had much of a say in the matter. I myself live in a very old suburb um, that was put in around 1947, so it still has a little bit of that Garden City aspect to it. Of people walk their dogs and their kids. I can walk to my bank or, uh, you know, the shoe repair place or um, the coffee shop down the street, that sort of thing. So it's a it's an old town, um, but, uh, you know, it has a rail line to it and all that sort of thing. So I make sure that those amenities are there. And I find that to be very nourishing. Um, there's also parks that are nearby that I can kind of romp around in. And and I have the city uh, 20 miles down the road. So can you can you take a train to Philly? Uh, you can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it's a great little life uh, we really have here. Uh, and, you know, if I have to go to New York, that's not really much of a problem either. So uh, I find that um, the uh, the setting that we have here is a humane one. And uh, I think it's no uh, small coincidence that people tend to uh, behave humanely in them. You know, you put a rat in a very small cage, it's going to act accordingly. How important is beauty? I think it's extremely important, actually. I think uh, um, the, the perception of beauty is where you get uh, into the weeds a little bit because, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of subject to review. But um, for me, uh, it's, it's central. I mean, you know, if, if you want to live uh, a decent, dignified life, uh, that has to be uh, very much part of it, at least from my point of view. Um, uh, but then um, I would say something like that because I tend to be a bit of an esthete. Um, but I do have to filter out a lot of ugliness uh, uh, in my everyday life, just like everybody else in this culture does. Um, but I guess uh, I would I would define ugliness as a, a successful banality that's just uh, kind of repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not in a in a very lofty position. Uh, you know, so I have to you know I have to deal with the the commercial corridors and and uh, all of the other things in the minor annoyances that other people have to deal with. But um, uh, you mean you you don't get into a limo with blackout curtains? <laughs> no, I don't have litter bearers or anything like that. I'm, well, there's there's an idea now. Yeah, I mean, I, I changed, my, you know, I changed my own oil in my car, that sort of thing. You know, I've been able to uh, squeak by, um, but you know, for me, the idea of luxury is an outdated idea anyway. I, I, I find the idea anathema. Um, I, I think uh, luxury is is more about time. Uh, that's real luxury, at least uh, that and experiences. Uh, luxury to me is just, you know throwing money at the problem. That's just bad taste. And um, it's not, you know, I don't know anybody who has money anyway, so that's not really an issue. So you really don't need a $9,000 you know, uh, Rolex watch? No, and I don't need an $8,000 Brioni suit either. I mean, most of my suits I get off the rack or, uh, you know, I have uh, a tailor that's really good at making alterations for cheap. Uh, some of my suits are from H&M. 
you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess what you would call a tramp esthete, you know, I, I, I I take, I try to take the dross of uh, 21st century America and, and try to turn it into something that's uh, humane and nourishing. And, um, you know, the idea of me doing that with really modest materials is something that I think is very important to what I do is just look, you know, I took a hundred dollar suit and I made it look like a, you know, a $1,500 suit. And, you know, that to me is real style. You know, real style is taking a $40 hat and making it look like a $400 hat. You are a, a, a professional artist making a living uh, in that in that way. And I'm wondering, what, what, what does the art of our time mean to you and tell you? And, and when I say that, I'm, I'm talking more about the kind of the curated grad school alumni uh, stunt craft and grand gestures of the of the museums um, yeah. what what does any of that have to do with nourishing the human soul a lot of the stuff that you know you would consider difficult or challenging to me kind of feels a little old fashioned at this point it feels like a relic of a of an earlier time in 20th century america it just feels like we're playing sort of an end game at this point we're almost kind of like you know, spinning our wheels, painting ourselves into the, you know, in tighter, ever tighter corners, waiting for the next paradigm to start uh, exerting itself, whatever that is. But I don't think anybody really has a clue what that is just yet. I was just about to ask you, do you have a, a clue what it might be? No, I'm just as much a subject to my time as everybody else. I'm, I'm kind of making it up as I go. And I think, I think these things happen rather abruptly. And I think, uh, you know, we may find out in you know, 10, 20 years what that is. But uh, I think we're seeing um, the petering out of, an, of one civilization and, and the beginning of a new one, I think. I think uh, we need to res- – there's a restart button that has to be uh, pressed someplace because the old academy was replaced by the new academy, which is the avant-garde. And the avant-garde is kind of running out of gas, and uh, at least from what I've seen. And um, – and the and the and the hyper capitalist uh, aspect that's being injected into the art world now. I mean, you know, artists have always made you know been members of the toady class. Um, we've always had artists, but we haven't always had bohemians. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the avant garde is now the academy. And what do you do when you have? an aesthetic that's based on novelty and the novelty starts running out. I mean, you know, maybe we've, you know, hit peak art. I don't know, but, uh, or peak <laughs> bohemia. Maybe it's peak bohemia we have to worry well, about. That's a very good point. Yeah. And, but- uh, I think maybe it's just sort of sputtering out and, uh, you know, like I said before, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's starting to feel exhausted and tired and, you know, the old tactics of shock, and outrage and and transgressiveness feel hopelessly you know threadbare at this point you know so i mean somebody like me who grew up during the late 20th century um you know i've seen all of that come and go and you know after the first initial shock a lot of that stuff kind of just pales and goes away and it isn't very all that and it isn't all that interesting but now i i concentrate on things and I and I tend to um, go towards things that I find um, uh, nourishing and um, and interesting and life affirming, and and not in an insipid way because I mean I think you can kind of you know 
you have to be careful not to backslide into, you know, into uh, Kincaidism with uh, this sort of thing. I mean, I think there is room for uh, work that is still challenging and interesting and compelling without necessarily uh, resorting to schoolyard antics. Let's put it that way. Uh, by Kincaidism, you're referring to Thomas Kincaid, the so-called painter of light? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, you have to be careful not to give the Philistines too much ammo because they'll, they'll try to make that argument real quick. Do you have some sense of uh, where we might land in this reset and what the character of it might be? Oh, geez, Jim, I don't, I have, you know, I, I, you, you have more of a handle on that than I ever will. I'm, 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 yeah, in but the we want to hear your handle. You know, mine's well, my handle is, I think, uh, we're in for a, a, a rocky century, uh, regardless of how things pan out. Um, I think we're in for a bumpy ride. Uh, it's, you know, you don't have to look very far to see the, the huge gap, even in, you know, in, in this country, the, the most, you know, one of the most successful nations in the past, uh, 200 years, um, you know, we're seeing a huge disparity between rich and poor. I mean, not so much on the coast. I mean, you have the illusion of prosperity in a lot of places on the coast, but you go about 200 miles in and um, it, it can it's pretty it's getting pretty desperate out there. I know I, I live in a, a small former factory village 200 miles north of New York City. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the old industrial economy is about 98 percent gone. Yeah. And uh, I actually have no idea how some of the people in this town are, are, are getting by. Uh, what you see is, the, is just the, the visible entropy of, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the houses and the buildings and the main street, you know, incrementally falling apart. Uh, I don't think I'm going to see an upswing in my lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm terribly guilty about it because I'm basically fiddling while Rome burns in some ways, um, but this is what I do best, and this is the the, the, the only way I can really um, make any kind of uh, uh, any kind of uh, cut any kind of figure in the world. So that this is what I do. I mean, uh, you know, you you try to call attention to uh, these excesses through the whimsy thing and all that, but uh, ultimately um, you're you're subject to the uh, to the whims of history, and um, this is just. Um, we're going to have to ride this out. Your um, signal contribution as a graphic artist was your edition of Walt Whitman's a Song of Myself, uh, an illustrated yeah. version of Walt Whitman and, yeah. and that particular um, epic of his, uh, in which uh, uh, literally the, the whole work is hand-lettered. It was published by... Uh, Tin Hat Press of uh, Portland, Oregon, is that correct? Yeah, Tin House Books. And, Tin uh, House Books. Yeah. Uh, and it's available uh, all over the place. Where does Whitman fit into our country's soul and to, to your own sense of yourself and, and your soul as an American? Well, I kind of feel like I've gone from uh, clown to monk with this last book, um, almost a penance <laughs> for uh, my excesses. Um, uh, I spent a year in my basement uh, working on on this uh, on this book. Uh, as far as what Whitman, how Whitman figures into the culture, I don't think it can be overstated. Really, I mean, um, he was he was uh, reading the, the the sermons of Emerson. 
in which uh, Emerson was exalting. I mean, this is a post-revolutionary generation that uh, was asking these really uh, daunting questions. What does it mean to be an American poet? What does it mean to be an American uh, man of letters? And uh, Whitman's answer to that and it kind of falls in with uh, Emerson's, which is um, uh, Emerson believed that uh, um, we should be drawing from uh, the world around us, not from other art. Uh, you know, drawing from nature itself, uh, you know, getting back to basics, in other words, you know, just like any other, um, uh, any other culture that uh, establishes itself, it starts with uh, really broad brush strokes and the, and the strokes get finer and finer as the generations go on until it collapses in on itself. Yeah, one of the most Uh, dispiriting things about contemporary art and literature and movies and everything else is how self-referential everything is uh, to, to other, to other existing cultural artifacts. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why I was attracted to the whimsy project was because dandyism seems to thrive in that kind of, uh, atmosphere, these perverse little, uh, arabesques and filigrees, uh, that are in between all of those broad, robust strokes that were put down by earlier generations. So, you know, in in a lot of ways, I was playing with the whimsy stuff because uh, I did feel that we were in decline and it felt like uh, the right language for that decline. And now I'm kind of getting back to the opposite end of that spectrum, which is uh, the beginnings of the Republic and, um, you know, that robustness and uh, kind of embracing that now. And, um, and so I feel that uh, Whitman... Uh, in his deconstruction and his scuttling of the um, uh, British and Anglo-Saxon literary project, uh, poetic project, if you want to call it that, um, was really the watershed point in in American letters uh, in a lot of ways. And and, and it should be said that Dickinson was a a very similar force in in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, Whitman was able to draw directly from lived experience. He, he did away with all, um, rhyme schemes and forms and all that sort of thing. And it was just this torrent of language, just this absolute visionary torrent. Uh, if you get the 1855 edition of, uh, Leaves of Grass, that's the one to get because it, it's that bold young Whitman that hasn't equivocated later on, like he did down the road and try to become this avuncular character. He's still this dangerous sort of, uh, character. If you look at the, uh, the frontispiece in the 1855 edition, you'll see a young, uh, cocky Whitman with his hat cocked off to the side and clothes, you know, and that was all very self-conscious. I mean, you know, even then, Artists were very conscious of how they presented themselves, and Whitman was uh, a bit of a dandy uh, in his earlier years. But by the time uh, uh, Leaves of Grass uh, exerted itself on his psyche, um, he did a 180, and he um, kind of became an everyman. And he kind of, you know, that was every bit as much of a pose as the earlier dandiacal pose of his. Mm-hmm. You know, well, ten years after that uh, 1855 edition. You know, you come to uh, what is for me probably the most uh, direct and expressive American poem that I know, which is 
Um, Whitman's poem about the death of Abraham Lincoln, when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed. Yes, yeah, that was, that one's a beauty. Um, yeah, uh, you know, a poem with uh, really kind of biblical overtones. And yes, something that is really formative about the soul of the nation itself. Um, but here we are now, 150 years later, <laughs> you know, in a nation of tattooed louts and methadrine freaks, and. Um, I, I don't know what the path is that we can climb on to get back to that kind of uh, American soul. Oh, gee, Jim, I think it's going to run its course. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, future generations will still have the wherewithal to have an appreciation for uh, for these earlier forms. Although I will say that Whitman uh, fancied himself one of the roughs. Uh, he 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 liked the uh, the tough guys and and the and the thick necked uh, you know beer drinkers and all of that sort of thing. That was those those were his guys. Well, maybe uh, one of those tattooed louts that's hanging around the convenience store buying lottery tickets is the Whitman of our time, and we just don't know it. It's possible. It's possible. Uh, you know, I know in all people who have cultivated that image who are actually uh, quite. Um, genteel in their appreciation of uh, art and literature. So, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. It's just, I think it isn't the sensibility. It's the way that that sensibility is being expressed that's changed. Um, you know, uh, the vocabulary is uh, is shifting around. And and I don't know if it's going to stick around or not. Maybe it's just a passing fad. I'm, I'm you know, but uh, we shall see. Me personally... I would have liked to have seen us adopt um, a more uh, native uh, mode of dress myself. Uh, you mean loincloths and breeches and buckskin? Yeah, I think so. It just, you know, if you look at the portraits of uh, Native American chiefs uh, that Charles Bird King uh, was doing in Washington, D.C., when they would make their delegation. Uh, into D.C. and uh, and visit the president. Um, if you look at those um, old photos, you'll see this, not photos, uh, these these prints, you'll see a synthesis between the new and the old world going on in the dress. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're wearing top hats, but but they're, they've got bear claws around their necks. Yeah, it's just fantastic. It's just this, you know, they look like painted birds, you know, and turbans and and really bright, bold colors and all of that sort of. And I and I always thought that that was always a shame that we decided to become second-rate Europeans instead. Well, maybe that will replace the LL Bean uh, no iron button-down shirt. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, you and I will meet in some future date in yes. uh, you know in a world made by hand bistro. And you'll show up with your bear claw necklace and your fedora. Yes. And uh, I don't know. I'll be wearing a spacesuit and uh, and an armadillo uh, uh, breastplate or something. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know a good tailor for that. Yeah. Uh, I want to close by asking you to tell the listeners a little bit about the funeral for Lord Whimsy that's scheduled for uh, is for some upcoming date. What's what's that going to be about? Well, it's a combination of a, uh, it's a bit of a, well, it's a program at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Philadelphia 
uh, that uh, is an ongoing thing uh, that they call free for all. And I'm having some video artists and electronic artists coming out that night that are going to be helping me send off Lord Whimsy in style. I'll be on the plinth lying on, uh, in state by the door, uh, shaking people's <laughs> hands, walking them in. And also we'll be doing some sermonettes that night. Uh, and uh, people are welcome to come dress their favorite creature, or uh, they can be dressed to the nines. Uh, the more outlandish, the better. Um, it's, uh, it's a very participatory sort of evening. Did, did, you give, be, did you give us the date of that? Yes, it's February the 11th at the uh, Institute of Contemporary Arts in Philadelphia. What time? Uh, starting around 6.30 and ending around 9 o'clock. So we're not going to hear from this dude again. Well, I don't know. It depends on if there's money in it. You know, you okay. never know. <laughs> you, might, you might resurrect him like Dracula. Well, yeah, I, I might. Or Frankenstein. Yeah. I'm putting him on the shelf for a while. Let's put him there. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Alan Crawford. Uh, Absolute pleasure, uh, Jeff. Formerly known as Lord Whimsy. There, by the way, there, there's, there's a lot of Lord Whimsy on YouTube, and I, I don't suppose he's going away out there, is he? I mean, no, you're not going to discontinue all that, are you? No, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, that stuff will still be around. Okay, because uh, yeah. listeners ought to go check it out. It's very interesting. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, and uh, we'll ride again. I hope so, Jim. Thank you. Thank you.